0: So if you're looking for a title um, this morning, I'll give you one, A Tale of Two Jewish Men. So just as we've been going through the Ruth series um, as a church and as a life group, uh, a question that I often ask myself as I go through the scriptures is, how then shall I live? Um, it's taken from an old book title, um, but the question remains, it sticks in my mind whenever I read the scripture, it's, it's there. And it's an important question because if we ask it, then we, we get a lot out of the scripture. So, it was um, no coincidence that as I was reading through the book of Ruth, something stood out to me. And it was like, Jesse, like, this is for you. And um, so, we're going to pick it up in Ruth chapter 4, verse 2 to 6. I'll read it for for us. So, Ruth chapter 4. This is the moment when uh, Boaz calls the unnamed redeemer to come along to the council in the town of Bethlehem and to uh, negotiate the redemption of Naomi's property and uh, Ruth and Moabite. So, let's pick it up. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If uh, you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you and I am next in line. I'll redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it, because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. For me, it was a telling scripture, as it gives us a picture of two different kinds of people, Boaz and the unnamed redeemer, and specifically what the unnamed redeemer did not do. What happened in this this interaction at the council? Why did he choose not to redeem Ruth? That was a question I asked myself. While this law offers no punishment for redeeming someone, I went and read, if you got the footnotes there, you can go read the law that this is related to. While this law offers no punishment for not redeeming someone, it was still a law that he was obliged to follow. Also, in what way could marrying Ruth the Moabite endanger his estate? Could it be that marrying a Moabite woman would affect his social standing? Perhaps, possibly. That was a big thing back then. And in doing so would affect his business and his estate? Could it be that he was choosing another law of not marrying a foreigner in order to protect his wealth? When Ruth clearly fit the parameters of this law, the guardian redeemer law. And why is it that Boaz is putting his love for Ruth over his own estate? Would Boaz not stand to lose what this man also believed he would lose? some interesting questions that come out of the scripture i think i have an idea or an answer boaz was doing what the law permitted because it was the right thing to do and not because he stood to gain anything from it it reminds me of another encounter that we witness in matthew 19 verse 16. i'll read it to you as well we read just then a man came to jesus and asked teacher what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what um, ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, "There is only one who is good. If you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments." Which ones? He inquired. <laughs> Which ones must I keep? Like it's like, come on, man. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your mother and father, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. I was reminded of the scripture because it's another moment where a person stands to lose their wealth or their stuff on account for what is right. Going back to the story of Ruth, the contrast in faith between these two men becomes quite clear. The unnamed redeemer followed the law because it offered blessing. Boaz followed the law because it was right. Boaz took care of the poor in his field by telling them to stay there for their safety, which would suggest that even though you could go glean from other fields, Those owners didn't have your personal safety in mind. The unnamed redeemer saw redeeming Elimelech's property as a means to expanding his estate until the next year of Jubilee, where he would have had to give it back to Naomi. Boaz saw redeeming Ruth as administering justice to a woman who lost so much and gave up her homeland and her gods for the way of Yahweh. And why is this important for us to learn? At least for me, I've done this. I am at times this unnamed redeemer. My perspective on life has often been to look for personal opportunity and not for kingdom opportunity. Even so, in my relationship with God, God, look at all this work I've done for you. Look at how great I am at serving your church, whatever it is. Um, Look at me, God, I've followed your laws. Why haven't you blessed me? What I've noticed is that when we have this perspective on life, we lose the creativity that God has given us to impact the spheres that we, are, that we find ourselves in in a way that far outlives our generation. When I look outward, I don't just see people who are paying my invoices. I'm speaking about myself personally here. I see image bearers of God who need to hear about him. When I look outward, I apply my craft and look for tangible solutions to my customers' problems and not just offer them smoke and mirrors to make a quick buck. When I look outward, I sense the purpose God has put in me. But when I look inward, I feel like my life is at threat by those around me. I need to make as much money as possible because I live in South Africa. I don't know. And when I feel those threats, the knives come out. And it's all me. Me, me, me. So how can we live a life like Boaz? I think Boaz was a man of simple faith. For him, the law was the right way to live but he also had the right perspective. He would have prayed it every morning and every night. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And as Jesus added, love your neighbor as you love yourself. For this sums up all of the law and the prophets. How many of you heard of a man named Humphrey Monmouth? No one. How many of you have heard of the man William Tyndale? So he translated the Bible from Latin to English, but Humphrey Monmouth was was martyred shortly after William Tyndale for conspiring in helping uh, William Tyndale complete his work. When everybody um, forbid William Tyndale from even remotely looking at translating the Bible into English, Humphrey Monmouth opened up his home and he said, come live in my home. And work on translating the scriptures into English. And then William Tyndale went over to Germany and he had copies of, his, of the English Bible printed on the first letterpress. And Humphrey Monmouth's cotton business, textile business, was used to hide the copies of the English Bible in the rolls of cotton and to smuggle it into England. It was through the smuggling that they were able to initially distribute 3,000 copies of the Bible in England. We don't hear of Humphrey Monmouth, but what is his his inheritance today? (laughs) The very scriptures in our hands. The very English scriptures in our hands. It's an inheritance that goes beyond what you can see. I highly doubt that Boaz expected his great-grandson to be the king of Israel. And never mind his even greater grandson, the Messiah of the world. The story of Ruth and Boaz is the kingdom of God on display, and that as we choose to place our faith in God, it's through the very nature of his ways and through our lives that he ordains great things for the saving of the world. The life of Boaz shows us that the point of our faith isn't to follow a set of rules, but to understand the underlying principle or way of the law, and to understand Uh, and to instead exceed the law by extending righteousness, which is the character embodied in the person of Christ, and justice, a correction of worldly living through the proclamation of the gospel, the redemption of people's lives, and the reformation of worldly patterns. This kind of exceeding or going beyond the law was what Jesus was trying to get across in his parables. The kingdom of God is like a Samaritan who picks up a wounded Jew and takes him and tends to him and cares for him it's the things that aren't written in the law but are but are implied through the existence of the law and exercised by the fruit of the spirit however a life like Boaz cannot be lived unless we come to god like ruth did humble in need of a savior and willing to forsake all um, all other gods for the one true god like she did perhaps the story of ruth and boas will ignite a conviction in you to go beyond the law in your different spheres of life and to develop a creative perspective that is driven by coming to God as, as a humble foreigner in need of a savior, forsaking all gods for the one true God, but going out as righteous farmers that look for every opportunity to extend the redemption that was given to us. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jesse griefs That was phenomenal. So now... It is my turn. Okay, so today I have the privilege of speaking to you, um, friends and mothers and fathers and little ones, about some of the lessons that I've learned from Ruth that are currently having an impact on me. So I am going to be doing a lot of reading. Jesus said that it is for your good that I go, it is for your good that I read a bit more. (laughs) So um, the first one I would like to point out to you begins with the place where Elimelech and Naomi lived. We know that they lived in a place called Bethlehem, which was in Israel, the land that God had promised to give to his people. It was a place that God described as a land flowing with milk and honey, a place where God said that he himself would dwell with his people, and there he would fulfill his purpose to bless the nations. What this means is that Elimelech and Naomi, in being part of the community of God's people, were exactly where God wanted them to be. So, Friends, if you are a part of a church, then I want you to know that you are exactly where God wants you to be, in the community of God's people. So then, what happens when the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey, experiences a famine? What happens when the field that God has given to you begins to look like a desert place? That field might be your finances, your marriage, your health, your relationships, or something else. What do you do when famine hits? This is what you do. You keep sowing, and you keep seeking God in the field that God has placed you in. The answer to your famine is not found in you moving to fertile fields. In the book of Ruth, Elimelech takes his family to the fields of Moab. And according to scholars, those fields were fertile and lush, just like the fields surrounding Sodom and Gomorrah. They were like a well-watered garden. But the one thing that those fields lacked was the presence of God, the very thing that distinguished God's people. What this means is that although those fields may have filled up their fridges and improved their standard of living, but those same fields robbed Naomi of her husband and of her two sons, and those same fields left her destitute, empty, and bitter. This can be contrasted with the field of Boaz, where Ruth finds herself in, and in that field, she not only finds abundance of grain, but she also finds rest, security, and a family. Something that the fields of Moab took from Naomi. So the answer to your famine is not to move to a fertile land or to a fertile field. The answer to your famine is rain. And God is inviting you to ask him for rain and to keep asking him for rain until he sends it. Hosea 10 verses 12 says, So for your self-righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. When the writer mentions God raining righteousness, he is speaking about God delivering his people from a famine. And this deliverance falls like water from the sky. As we all know, water is refreshing, revitalizing, and life-giving. God's deliverance is refreshing, revitalizing, and life-giving. In the case of God's people in Ruth, we know that rain came because when Ruth and Naomi arrived in Bethlehem, it was harvest time. However, we need to notice another detail. Harvest time is not only possible because of rain, but because people have sown. If you are experiencing financial famine, apart from asking God for rain, my question to you is are you sowing seeds of making wise decisions? If you are experiencing relational difficulties, are you sowing seeds of kindness? If you need to repent, then begin to sow the seeds of repentance. Can you imagine how the story of Ruth would have been if Boaz Boaz, did not sow? The chances of Ruth ending up in his field would have been non-existent. Another thing to note is the timing of God's visitation, the sending of rain. Just like the people back then, we do not know the day when rain will come. But what the people in those days knew was that if your ground was not ready and the seed was not in the ground by the time rain came, you would miss out on the harvest. So keep sowing and keep praying. They both go hand in hand. It is our way of us partnering with God where we do what we are called to do while we trust God to do what only he can do. The next lesson for me can be found in Ruth chapter 2, where Boaz tells Ruth to stay in his field and to gather grain there. We learn that in a day she gathers over 13 kilograms of grain, which is enough to feed her and Naomi for five days. I did the maths. Even though she gathers so much in a day, the writer notes that she continues to come back to glean, and she ends up spending four months in the field. If she gleaned the exact amount each day that she had gleaned on the first day, this alone would have enabled her to gather over a ton's worth of grain, which would have been enough to feed her and Naomi for at least 400 days. And that is just a conservative estimate. This speaks to me of the incredible generosity of Boaz, and it points to the infinite generosity of Jesus. Not only that, but it also highlights to me our responsibility to take hold of what Jesus offers to us. Jesus has brought us into his field, and he says to us, glean. The danger with us sometimes is that we lack the passion that Ruth had to glean. We become content with what we have already gathered, And as a result, we miss out on the more that Jesus has on offer for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9 to 10, For I am the least of the apostles, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The kindness of Boaz came to Ruth, the least among the gatherers, Because she was a foreigner and a woman. When that kindness came, it did not make Ruth lazy, but it made her all the more eager to work. May we take time to ponder the immense kindness of God, and may His kindness, rather than make us lazy, stir us to love and good works. The next lesson invites us to ponder Elimelech, whose name means, My God is King. Now, in those days, parents would normally name their children in response to an event in their lives, or because they were hoping for their children to live up to what their names meant. What is ironic for me is that Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, decides to move from the land where God's throne is to live in a kingdom ruled by another king. If you read the story carefully, you will notice that the writer first begins by saying that Elimelech and his family were going to sojourn in Moab, which means to live for a short time. But then it progresses to them remaining there, and then finally it ends off with them settling down. This scene highlights to me the importance of paying close attention to the decisions we make today, because today's compromise may mean destruction for us and for those who are to come. What this scene also highlights to me is that there is a sense that by Elimelech moving to Moab and eventually settling there, it is possible that he is now yielding to the rule of the king of Moab. He's no longer thinking of returning to Israel, but instead he dies in Moab. This is sad because God had rescued the people of Israel from slavery and had brought them into the promised land. They were no longer slaves, but were free to serve him. Instead of Elimelech recognizing and remembering what God had done for him and his people, he finds himself being lured to the the fertile lands of Moab because they seem to offer him the security and provision that he is looking for. The same applies to us today. We have come to know Jesus, and we have tasted of his goodness. We have been delivered from slavery to sin, and we have now been transferred into his kingdom. He is now our king, and we bear his name. But there is a danger that circumstances can cause our eyes to look to the deceitful, fertile lands where we were once slaves. Instead of setting our minds on things above, we begin to compromise and to yield ourselves to sin, our old master. For some of us, the temptation of fertile lands could come when you find yourself unsatisfied in your marriage, and adultery begins to knock on your door in the form of someone giving you the attention that you long for. Or it may come through the temptation to compromise on your convictions because you are longing to fit in and to be liked. What, What we can learn from this story is this. Don't give in. Don't subject yourself again to sin because it leads to death, even for a little while. Even if for a little while you find enjoyment in it, it ultimately leads to death. Finally, the best part about this story for me is that God can redeem anyone in any situation. No matter matter where you find yourself or how you might feel from God. uh, no No matter where you find yourself or how far you might feel from God. If you are breathing on planet Earth, then remember this, that God can redeem you. Thank you
2: it is an honor to stand before you so jumping straight in Peter touched on it but imagine the story of Boaz and Ruth if Boaz had no money it would have been cool he'd been like I really love you and I really want to redeem you but I actually there's nothing I can do for you be a cool love story but it'll have no power or imagine the opposite if Boaz had all the money in the world all the land but if he was indifferent and apathetic towards Ruth we have a very lame, boring story. But the power of this story is that Boaz was both good and he was able. He had the motive and he had the means. How much more Jesus? That Jesus is good and he is able. You see, he is incredibly good. It is his essence. I was telling the youth on Friday, it's not that he tries to be good. He is good. It is who he is. He is good towards us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In Psalm 145, verse 7, it says, They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. He's rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Psalm 136 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his love endures forever. We know he is good. But again, if he was just good, with no power and with no authority, Again, it will be a cool love story, thanks God, but if he had no authority to act, where would we be? Would that really be good? The good news is he has the power. He has all the power. He spoke this world into existence. He holds the universe in his hand. He calms storms. He changes things at the click of a finger, at the you know, at a single word of his, anything can change. He is good and he is able. In in the same Psalm, 145, if we go a little bit back to verse 3, Great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. We sang about it earlier. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty act, the glorious splendor of your majesty, your wonderful works, the power of your works, your great deeds. It goes on and on about how powerful God is. The beautiful thing about that is if you go further down into verse 13 it says the Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made the Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down because he is both good and able he can do that because he is good and able he can be faithful to us because he is good and able he can uphold us through whatever it is that we face and why is that good news? Because it means whatever we are facing in our lives has come to us through the filter of God's goodness and God's ability and sovereignty. And I don't want to belittle whatever it is. I mean, I know there are people in this room with real deep, dark struggles, but actually even that thing, even that thing which beyond our comprehension has come to you through the goodness and the mighty hand of God. And so although it doesn't make sense, by, by faith and not by sight, we cling to the fact that he is good and that he is able. And on this side of eternity, we may not feel that goodness always. It may not always feel good. Because this world is broken and, you know, what goodness is has been a little bit twisted in our mind. But the beautiful thing is, like Francois spoke when we, a, f- a few weeks ago about uh, struggling well, is actually after a little while, and although that little while for you may be 80 years, actually we will in eternity see goodness face to face. After a little while, we will know goodness in all its reality and truest form when we see Jesus face to face. But by his grace, we see glimpses of that now, and we can know the goodness of God in our land of living right now. One of my favorite obscure scriptures, if I can call it that, in 2 Chronicles 20, the Israelites are facing a terrible situation. There's an army coming up against them, and they they just have no hope. But I love Jehoshaphat. He's the king, and this is what he says. He says, Oh our God, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do know, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you." And then it says, "All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and their little ones, stood there before the Lord." And that's what we do in the face of our struggles, in the face of the unknown. We say, "God, we don't know what to do, but what we do know, and what we're going to cling to, is that you are good." and that you are able, and so God, I'm going to trust you in whatever this is. That is our hope. So point number one, Boaz and how much more Jesus was good and able. Point number two, and this the youth will know, they've heard this over the last three days, so I pray they know, (laughs) is about identity. Is that Naomi defined herself by what she felt and not by what the truth of who God is. If we look at it, she says in Ruth. Ruth 1, she says, Don't call me Naomi, call me, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. You see, she lost sight of who God really was. She let her feelings and her bitterness reframe God's character in her mind, and so she lost the, her true identity. It was the first thing we've ever seen of identity theft in the Bible. It was stolen because she lost sight of who God is. Because whether we like it or not or whether we know it or not, actually our identity is so intertwined with who God is and who we see God to be because we were made in his image. In Romans 11 verse 36, it says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Actually, because everything we are flows through him, if if this gets distorted, our connection to him gets distorted, our identity gets distorted. She felt God was bitter, so she became bitter. See, because in in, in Genesis 3, there's the fall, and Satan comes in, and things get very messed up. And in that moment, our view of who God is has been warped. And ever since then, we've got this warp away from the truth of who God is. And so therefore, we've got a warp away from the truth of who we actually are, and who we've been made to be. See, Naomi would have grown up and she would have known and would have been told to her hundreds and hundreds of times who God really was, you know. They had these, the Jewish people, all these things, you know. It would be written everywhere who God is. You wouldn't be able to avoid it. She would have known that truth. But when her experience didn't match up to the truth of who God was or what she felt like it didn't match up, she abandoned that truth and she exchanged the truth of who God is for a lie. And she chose rather to rely on her experience of what she felt God was and her feelings to be a better teacher of who God really is. But God does not change along with our experience of him. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. How great it is for us that God does not change. How great it is for us that God's character and who he is is not reliant on who we think he is. Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. I love that we sang that song. Because his character does not fit into the various molds of who we think he is. But he is God. He is above all of us. He is not transformed. He is not affected by who we are or who we think he is. And that is beautiful. His faithfulness, his love, his holiness, all he is is not reliant on our belief in it. Because he is true. He is holy, holy God. He's the great I am. He is the unchanging one. That is something we can build our lives on. If you're looking for something to put your identity on, put it on that. Not on your feelings of what God is or your feelings of how life is going, because life is hard. But actually, God is good, and he is unchangingly good. So we can build our lives on that. And even when it doesn't feel true, again, by faith and not by sight, we cling to who he has revealed himself to be. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all at the ground is sinking sand. Our feelings, our experiences are sinking sand, but God is not. And I don't have time to go through again, ask the youth if they can tell you some things. I don't have time to go through all the characters and attributes of who God is and what that means for us. But I thought let's start at the beginning and touch on three. Genesis one verse one. In the beginning, God created. He is creator. Which means That he gets to decide what happens, that we are created, that we are humble, that we are dependent on him. But it also means that we were called to create, we were called to add, we were called to make a difference, not just to consume. We were called, as both the guys have said, to put our hands to work, because Ruth did not shy away from hard work. Actually, we were called to create, along with our God. A few scriptures later, Genesis 1 verse 4, God created, and then he said, and this is good. He called something good. God is the definer of good. That means we take our cues from what is good from him alone. Not Netflix, not TikTok, not our Facebook feeds, not the newsreel. What is good comes from what God says is good. That also means in the converse that what God says is not good, we don't, decide, we don't get to decide that it's good because it's pleasurable to us. Actually, God gets to decide what is good. In Genesis 1 verse 26, God said, let us, let us create man in our image. He is a relational God, which means that we don't get to go at life alone. Even if you're more like me, introverted, and would rather stay at home with my dogs, we don't get to do that because God is a relational God, and we are called to reflect his image. It means we link arms, and we go at life together with people, advance the kingdom together, not alone. So I encourage you to take this book. And start from the beginning to end, find out who God is, and there you will find out who you are. Don't frame your identity on what you think or experience or feel, but actually find Jesus and build your life on that. He is good, he is able, and he is unchanging, and from there we can find our identity in him.
3: Can I invite us to stand, please? I'm not going to try and wrap all of those things together. I'll leave the Lord to do that. But I just sat there listening to these three individuals. And I can't help but marvel at how good God is. We are a church that loves the word. We're not concerned about people's thoughts. We want to preach the word as He has called us to. And this morning we received the word from three very different people, but their lives are submitted to Jesus. And um, all three of them, in a sense, have grown up in this church. And I looked at them, and they've had some difficulties in their lives. Actually, all four of us share some difficulties. But I just sat there and I thought, Lord, you are so good. You are so kind. Because you can take stories and you can take death sometimes in people's lives and in people's journeys, and you can turn it around for your good. <laughs> like broken people that have maybe been dealt a bad card. They don't understand why. But God is a redemptive God. And He's able to redeem any situation feel like we need to respond the word I woke up feeling this morning is the word entrusted and uh, I was reminded of this text in 2 Timothy this is Paul speaking and he says this I'm reminded of your sincere faith a faith that first dwelt with your grandma and mother Lois and your mother Eunice and now I'm sure dwells in you as well for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God Each of us have received time, talents, and treasures. There's things that God has given us. And my question to us this morning is, what are you doing with what has been entrusted to you? There's a responsibility to entrust something to somebody. There's a responsibility given to you to take that which you have received and to run with it as God has called you to. And so I want to ask if you feel that word is for you, any of those things that the three guys have mentioned, Or maybe it is that the devil has robbed you. You feel like you've been dealt a bad blow. Maybe you lost a loved one. I don't know what's happened in your life. But I trust that this morning, uh, faith has stirred in your heart. I trust as we've gone through the book of Ruth, that faith has stirred in your heart. That actually, Lord, I don't want to look at my circumstances in the natural, but what I want to do is I want to look at you. And so I want to invite you forward if you need to respond. want to invite you forward to anything that maybe these three guys have said but i really did feel as they were coming to land that if god can use those three individuals who come from broken families and so do i what does he want to do with you what is it that he's given in you in your hands and maybe you shied away maybe you've held and said lord surely not me surely i'm not the person but I want to say that God has entrusted every single one of us with something. And some of us need to this morning come forward and say, Lord, I know what you've spoken. I know the prophetic words that have been over my life. I'm not living as I should be. And so I want to invite you forward. Don't be shy. I do feel that God wants to break some things over some people this
1: morning. Maybe. They-